Hello and welcome to the special edition of our podcast series created by us here at Broadsword called Be Listening. This week, we are celebrating International Women's Day, a global event championing the social, economic, cultural and political achievements of women. We are incredibly fortunate to have with us on the podcast today an award-winning journalist and broadcaster, the brilliant Juliet Foster, who is also a professional host and motivational speaker. Juliet specializes in speaking on topics including media, diversity and inclusion, contemporary culture and empowering women in the workplace. Juliet, welcome to the podcast. We're delighted to have you join us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. You've had an incredible career in broadcast media, working as a reporter and a presenter for the BBC, Radio 4 and Sky News, just to name a few. Could you tell us how you started out in broadcasting? I'll try to keep the journey description as brief as I can, because <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been around the block for a very long time. Um, it was really by accident, because um, I, when I was a child, I wanted to be a barrister. Don't ask me why, because I do not have a legal brain. And then I decided I wanted to be a Christian missionary. And then I decided I wanted to be an academic, because I love history. And I went to university, I took a degree in history and church history, and I was inching up to my graduation year, and I decided I wasn't really interested in the academic life, and I wasn't really sure where to go. And I had a boyfriend at the time who's who got on very well with his ex-girlfriend, and she was offered a place on a journalism training course, which she mm-hmm. turned down because she decided it wasn't for her. And I think she took a a course instead that was offered to her on on one of these company training courses that you you take take young people, you build them up so that they can be managers and hopefully eventually CEOs of the business if you retain them for that length of time. But she basically said, look, I don't want to do this, but I think that you could do it. And it just seemed very interesting. So I pursued it and thought, okay, fine. So um, when I graduated, I came back to London and I spent a year training as a radio journalist at what was then the London College of Printing, but which is now the London College of Communications. And that's where it all started, really. So it it came out of uncertainty and then an ex-boyfriend's ex (laughs) rejecting a course and telling me all about it. And those words, I think you could do this. I can't, but I think you can do it. That is a roller coaster of a start, but <laughs> remember, this is I the condensed it. version. I haven't given you yeah. the bits in between. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any general advice to give anyone keen to break into the radio and television presenting industry? My advice would be do it. I would actually say as well that it's probably a lot easier now than it was Mm. when I started. My journey goes back to the 1980s and it was a different world back then. There was no dot-com, there was no Google, there was no Facebook, there was no YouTube. And certainly the technology that we used in radio is very, very crude, or was very, very crude compared to what is used today. You and I are talking on a podcast. The podcast concept did not exist. When I started out as a radio journalist, (laughs) I laugh about it now, but... um, you recorded your interviews on reel-to-reel machines called Ewers, and I still have my mm-hmm. Ewer. Or you recorded 
on cassettes. You used a Marantz to record on, and then you would actually transfer it from the cassette to the reel-to-reel. And then when you had to edit your reels, <laughs> you used a razor blade, a white china graph pencil, Ooh. and white sticky tape. That was how we cut our pieces, which is very, very crude. I agree, but it worked. We knew how to cut things very quickly. We could work to deadlines, all that sort of stuff. So I think it's a lot easier now if you want to be a reporter and if you want to go into television, because, look, there are loads of people who are using very basic equipment. They're setting up studios in their homes and they're they're coming up with their own programme concepts. That's not to say that the training isn't relevant, because I think it's really important, because if you want to go into news, it really helps if you have that basic grounding. I was in news. You learn how to understand a story. You you learn the process of, of news gathering. And certainly when mm. I started in radio, they always told us about the third ear. So they said, OK, you've got you've got the, you've got your left and your right ear, but there's another ear which is in your brain. And you know when you have that third that third ear that you can do an interview with somebody. And if your editor says, I need 30 seconds out of that interview, you know where the 30 seconds are. It just stands out. So those were the basic skills. And you can never, ever, ever forget the basic skills. Never neglect them. Because remember as well, one of the important things that I did when I was training, we had to take law exams. So in that sense, I, I did go back to um, the original legal ambition, except I didn't become a barrister. But we had to um, learn about the laws of defamation, contempt of court, all that sort of stuff, because you may have to go to a court and cover a case and you need to know how to conduct yourself so that you don't land yourself or your publication in trouble. So don't rule out the basics. And I would encourage people, if you're serious about doing this, do it. Use the current tools which are out there with new technology. But at the same time, get yourself on these courses. They exist for a reason. As the owner of your own business, media business, uh, what have the last two years been like? Have there been any unexpected advantages during the pandemic? The last two years have been absolutely extraordinary because I found that prior to COVID-19, I was either working in a physical location in the UK or I was travelling abroad. So I went to South Korea to host various events. I went to Saudi Arabia and um, I, 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 I basically built physical, well, long distance travelling into my closer to home travelling. But this is the point. I never worked from home. When I worked from home, if a client gave me an assignment and said, OK, then we want you to do X, Y, Z, I would be at home going on the computer, researching what the client wanted, writing my scripts, working with the client in terms of the content to make sure that everything was going in the right direction. But then you go to a physical location and then you deliver. And I remember that in actual fact, it was before we went into lockdown. I remember working with a client and the client said, OK, then. We need you to to carry out these interviews from your home because one mm. of the participants is based in Jersey. The other one's in Birmingham. And so we can't we can't get you to go to a physical location. So you can do this assignment at, let's say, four o'clock in the afternoon. And then can you get up at three o'clock in the morning? Because we want you to do the same thing with um, the other team who are based in Australia. And. Mm. We, we want you to do this via Zoom. Now, I had never heard of Zoom. <laughs> I mean, it's all, it's burnt into the location. It's a noun. Should we do a Zoom? <laughs> to Zoom. 
never heard of it. So I remember being very, very nervous when I got this link and then hitting <laughs> it and being incredibly relieved when I saw these people appearing on the screen. And I thought to myself, well, that's a one-off. That's never going to happen again. I then, um, I think I went to Saudi Arabia, got back from Saudi Arabia after my second visit, and then the country went into lockdown. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, a period where I, I don't think that anybody knew what they were doing. I think it was during the, the summer, from the end of spring to the summer, it's like, what do we do? Because we, we've suddenly got all this time on our hands. What do we do? In my case, I spent the time making cheesecakes. Don't ask me why. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was involved in a recovery summit and it was great fun, but I had to log into a platform and it wasn't Zoom. It was something else. And I remember at one stage, um, one of the one of the lines went down so I could I could see myself but I couldn't see the guest but I could hear them and it was fascinating going into studio mode because I'd worked in television studios and you can't just sit there and cry you just have to wing it and that's exactly what I did until the connection came back up again I found myself having conversations with the people who set up this um this summit and they were explaining to me why things happened and it's like I actually understand this because I had a complete wall against technology. So the point that I'm, I'm trying to make here is that for me, those two years were extraordinary because it forced me to deconstruct my fear of technology. It hasn't gone completely, but it's a lot it's a lot easier for me to handle technology now than it was before COVID-19. And um It was also getting used to working on platforms. It was basically using your skills in a completely different way. I Mm. had to set up my studio, and I use the word studio in inverted commas, in my dining room. So you suddenly become very, very conscious of what's in the background. I had to buy camera lights because (laughs) obviously you've got two types of light. The light coming coming in from your window, the light from your, your ceiling, and you need something which is a bit brighter. I had to start wearing a lot more makeup, things which I'd never thought about before, never considered. It totally changes everything. So you have to you have to be aware of what's going on. You have to try to deliver a visual quality of service, which perhaps you've you've never considered before. You've never contemplated. So it changed everything. It really did change everything. The way that I work, working from a computer looking at my working space as if it was a television studio. Okay, so I don't have a gallery. I don't have a full quota of cameramen. I am everything. I'm responsible for the sound. I'm responsible for the camera. I'm responsible for the lighting. (laughs) And it's an extraordinary responsibility, but it's one that you're not conscious of. It's only when you stand back and you think, my gosh, is this what I'm doing? That's when you realise you are multi-skilling. Yeah, it's, it's been crazy the amount of changes that have happened in such a short period of time. Absolutely. Many view International Women's Day as an opportunity to talk about change and how we can work towards gender parity. We would love to know what does International Women's Day mean to you? It means a lot of things. I think it probably sounds like a slightly strange thing to say, but bear with me on this. It's gratitude first of all, because life isn't easy as a woman, but I think it's tougher in some countries than it is in the UK. 
So I'm grateful for the fact that although life can be hard, it's a lot harder for women elsewhere in the world. I'm grateful for the fact that I have that privilege, that I live in safety and that my voice can be heard. It disturbs me, though, that that privilege isn't extended elsewhere. It's very, it's very, very sad, for example, that, you know, I do my work from home. I go out and there are women, for example, in Afghanistan who do my job. And when they leave their homes, they're putting their lives in their hands. It shouldn't be that way. It's my privilege to walk a street in safety. It is not their privilege. And that is just so wrong. Safety is something which every woman should have, regardless of where she is in the world, regardless of what she does. I'm thankful for the fact that I have a basic certain right, the right to vote. But I'm also conscious of the fact that there are women in other countries in the world who are fighting for that basic right. Again, some of them have paid for that fight with their lives or they have been badly injured. That should not be happening. I'm grateful for the fact it was my privilege that when I was growing up as a young girl, I had the privilege of not being sure what I wanted to do, that my career aspirations meandered from one thing to another. I wasn't in the position where my parents told me, well, actually, you have to leave school at the age of 11 or 9 or 10, whatever, because you have to work, because there are mouths to feed and everybody has to contribute to the economics of the household. Okay, and it saddens me because when you think about the number of young girls who were born around the same time as me and all that talent that we lost because they had to leave school very early in their lives, they're still doing this. You know, there are young girls today who don't have the benefit of an education which gives them choices. It gives them the chance to be what they want to be, what they can be. It's our privilege here that we have that. It's not their privilege. It should be extended. It should be every girl's right that if she wants to leave school when she's 16 or 18, it is her right. It shouldn't have to be a privilege. It shouldn't be dependent on her economic status that if she comes from a very wealthy family, then she can go to school. If she wants to go to university, her parents can can send her to a university either in her home country or send her abroad. That's not fair. Okay, every child, every girl should have that right. I think also as well for me, International Women's Day is understanding the reality of what it is to be a woman in COVID, in COVID times, that You have to be strong for yourself. You have to be strong for your children. There are children who have suffered appalling mental health issues as a result of the enforced lockdowns. And if you don't have access to that support, the children access the rock, the most immediate rock, which is their mother, even though she herself Mm -hmm. is under pressure. But she has to somehow hold everything together. So she has to hide her own sadness, her own vulnerability to be strong for her children. We need to have support for women. We need to recognise that whilst there are some families where you've got a partner and everything works together very well, there are a lot of families where it's the woman who is raising the children. There is financial stress. There is mental health stress. So we need to create those spaces of well-being, not just for the mums, but also for the children. And on the subject of what of well-being, it's very important when we think about International Women's Day that there are women who are in abusive relationships. They are trapped They don't have much support. And it's really vital that we try to give them that support. We need to give them safe spaces. I'm big enough, old enough and ugly enough to remember growing up as a little girl in the early 70s and um, 
there were one or two women's refuges around, but they were very few and far between. Now there are more of them, but again, the places are limited, mm-hmm. you know. So imagine what it's like if you are in a very dangerous relationship and you want safety, not just for yourself, but also for your children, how difficult it is accessing those places. It's hard and the tough choices that follow. So it's really important that, yes, we celebrate women, but we need to recognise that the privilege that most of us have as women, it is not universal. And that should be the goal, that the things we take for granted We are grateful for them, yes, but we also need to make sure that others, regardless of where they are in the world, they can share in them too, because it's their right and their privilege. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said there. And thank you for sharing. Um, We're slightly running out of time here, but um, I have one last question for you. Um, Do you think enough is being done to help women succeed and create more of a diverse workforce? And do you think... What could businesses be doing to help women succeed? It's a very good question. And I think to a certain extent, yes, things are being done to help women. If you actually have very enlightened companies where there is a recognition on the part of of the structure, the architecture at the top, that we need to have a company which reflects the 50 percent and also groups within that 50 percent. I'm talking LGBTQ plus. I'm talking about disabled women, women of colour, etc. When you actually have those enlightened architectures, that's absolutely brilliant. But it's how you reach out to people. It cannot and must never be a box ticking exercise. There has to be sincerity in what you do. And if you have the aspiration, but you're not sure how to fulfil it, then there is absolutely no harm talking to people that know how these things work. They know how to help you reach out because they are designed to be conduits. Don't be afraid to reach out to these groups. Don't be afraid to talk to diversity specialists. They're there for a reason. They want to work with you. They're not there to castigate you. They want to work with you. What does concern me is that whenever companies try to to do this, there's a fear of somehow being seen as woke. This isn't about being right on and being woke. It's about a recognition. We have an economy which it's 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 bumping along it could do better it's going through a period of stress and when we have periods of stress it's really important that we get everybody on board in helping that economic structure weather uncertainty it's not going to happen if you recruit from a very specific pool of people so in other words we like to go to this pool because there are people here who are we can identify with. They're the right folk for us because they have the right education. They come from the right social background. That's nonsense. If you're serious about weathering this storm, you have to open the gates to everybody. You have to change the way you look, the way you, well, not so much the way you look, the way you think. Okay. So just because a worker is disabled, it doesn't mean that she is incapable. She's got a fine brain. How are you going to access what that brain has to offer if you just see a disabled woman? That's nonsense. Okay, so this is why if you're serious about doing this, you need to reach out. But you also you need to you need to go to the to the the very bottom or so to speak, not so much the bottom, but the base of the ecosystem. Mm. That is going to the schools as well. It's really important that you build up those links because there are too many girls, for example, who want to do things like engineering. They, They want to be physicists but they just feel that they can't do it, okay? Of course they can do it, but if it takes somebody who 
comes from um, a, a project, a government-backed project, be it looking at life on Mars or whatever, to actually go into these schools and to talk to the girls to reach out and say, yes, you can do it. It's not a daft ambition to have. You can do it. If you want to be a car mechanic, you can be a car mechanic. I mean, it's quite, it's, it's quite bizarre, really, isn't it, that if you see car mechanics, female car mechanics on TV programmes, they're very pretty and they look quite attractive in their overalls. It's a difficult job. <laughs> you know, it's hard work. It's not about looking sexy and wearing bow ties. It's about getting your hands dirty. It's about lifting engines. It's about knowing how the mechanics of a car works, because if you mess it up, OK, then the customer's going to complain. So it's about customer service. It's about understanding what it is that you're doing. And if a girl wants to be a car mechanic, then the guy who runs the garage around the corner or the chain of garages, he should be in there in the schools talking to the girls. You know, it's all of these things that we can do. So that's that's my advice to employers. Don't be frightened of being called woke. You're being sensible. I hate this 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 title, the diversity industry or the race relations industry. It's not an industry. OK, it's an aid. It's an aid to making you a better employer because you're reaching out to groups who may feel that somehow they can't be a part of this story. And we need that 50 percent. We need the groups within the 50 percent now, given what is happening in the with, with the economy in this country, not just the economy here, but globally. There are all sorts of stresses and you need to find that talent. If you don't know where to look, there are people out there who can help you. A special thank you to you, Juliet, for sharing your experience with us today, and a special thank you to all of you listening. If you found this interesting and would like to see more content from us, you can visit our website at wearebroadsword.com or follow our socials at Broadsword Event House on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or Broadsword Group on Twitter. Anything you would like to add, Juliet? What I would like to add is I wish every woman who is listening to this a happy International Women's Day. I wish you the very best in everything that you do. I wish your daughters the very best in their ambitions. And I hope that one day a lot of the uncertainty that women around the world are experiencing, the fears about their safety, the fears about their future will go away because everybody will work together. And I think that conversations like this are a really good starting point. So. That's what I wish for everybody who listens to this. Thank you so much, Julia. And thank you to all of you listening. Hope to see you on the next one. Bye for now.